Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us for the next few moments as we continue to investigate Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. I wonder if you've sat down recently to ask yourself the most basic question that we Christians can ask ourselves. What indeed is the saving gospel? What is it I'm supposed to believe and adhere to and hold fast as the saving message which will guarantee me immortality as Jesus promised it? What indeed is the gospel? One thing is certain in the New Testament, and that is that the gospel must not be detracted from or added to. There must be no substitutes, no additives, and no subtractions from the precious message which Jesus delivered for our saving health and which he guaranteed would give us our ultimate destiny as immortal beings in his coming kingdom. Now, the gospel has a quite specific label, if that is we start at the beginning of our New Testament textbook. Why is it that we seem to have developed a bad habit of not defining the gospel from the words of Jesus himself. There seems to be an underlying tacit acceptance of an extraordinary tradition by which we seem to think that the gospel proceeds only from the writings of Paul. But why should we not define the gospel from the words of Jesus? Can you indeed define the gospel from the gospels, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Or are you driven only to the book of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. I want to tell you that Luther, the great reformer, made a most extraordinary statement which I think has confused us. We as Christians are committed to studying the Scriptures for ourselves. We are not supposed to believe everything that even famous reformers tell us. Luther says that the most important books in the New Testament are Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. And he then went on to say that you won't find as much gospel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is that really true? I thought the gospel was declared by Jesus. Jesus certainly thought that. He said in Luke 4.43, I must proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason for which I was sent. In another passage he said that he'd come to save sinners to save the lost. He invited people to repent and be saved. In the famous parable of the soils, where he described the results of his own preaching and the effect of his message upon different types of persons, in that parable he said that when anybody hears the gospel message about the kingdom of God, the devil comes to try to snatch away the message which has been sown in his heart so that he cannot believe it and be saved. I'm referring there to two critically important verses which I thoroughly commend for your study. Matthew 13, verse 19, Jesus described the sort of message by which he was attempting to impart immortality, or at least the seed of immortality, to his audience. Matthew 13:19, Jesus said, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, the devil comes and snatches it away, or tries to snatch it away, and tries to cause the person not to understand it. And in the parallel passage in Luke 8:12, Jesus said this, When anyone hears the message, God's message, 
God's gospel, the devil tries to come and snatch it away from his heart so that he cannot believe it and be saved. May I point out to you that the obvious implication of those words is that Jesus makes an intelligent reception of the kingdom of God message as he preached it, the absolute essential for the beginning of Christianity. Indeed, Jesus is talking about seeds. Seeds have a way of initiating new life. And the seed which initiates and inaugurates that spark of new life for the Christian, the born-again experience, is the message of the kingdom of God. It's not a message at this stage in the career of Jesus about his death and resurrection. Now, certainly the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential parts of the gospel also. But Jesus goes one stage behind that, and he sees a very clear chain of events. A believer is first to hear and accept and understand the gospel of the kingdom of God as Jesus himself preached it. No wonder then that we find in the book of Acts Paul preaching the kingdom of God on every possible occasion. In Acts 19 verse 8 we find Paul having preached the kingdom of God for three months in a given city. In the 28th chapter of Acts and verse 23 Paul is laboring from dawn till dusk using the Old Testament, the law of Moses and the prophets, using those texts to demonstrate the gospel about the kingdom of God. The text says that he was witnessing to these Jews from dawn till dusk about the gospel of the kingdom. And in the 30th and 31st verses of the 28th chapter of Acts, the very last thing we hear about Paul's ministry in Rome, we find Paul once again, this time ministering to the Gentiles, the very same gospel about the kingdom of God. And so from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, found in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, right through to the end of the book of Acts, there is a constant emphasis on the gospel, lest we should ever lose track of the most precious saving information, the gospel itself. There's an absolute emphasis on the fact that the gospel contained information about the kingdom of God. In Acts 14, verse 22, Paul said, It is through much tribulation that we are destined ultimately to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, therefore, is the objective of the Christian faith. To be in the kingdom in the future is to become a co-ruler and co-regent with Jesus in that future kingdom. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his chosen apostles, You are the ones who have followed me throughout my trials and tribulations, and therefore just as my Father has covenanted with me to give me a kingdom, so I covenant with you to give you a kingdom, and you will be seated upon twelve thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. What a marvelous glimpse into the future Jesus gives us in that wonderful summary statement of the whole purpose of Jesus' agenda and his mission and ministry, he tells us that he has appointed those apostles to be administrators and rulers in the future kingdom of God. They're going to administer a new world, and in that new world, central to the organization, will be the regathered twelve tribes of Israel, and the apostles will be kings in that new government. Just as God had covenanted with Jesus to give him a kingdom, so now then Jesus graciously covenanted with his chosen twelve to share that kingdom with him in the future new era 
of the kingdom of God on earth. We're talking here about a heaven, in quotes, that will be on the earth. It would be to the greatest advantage of Christians if they would cease using the language about heaven and adopt the language of Jesus himself about the kingdom of God coming on the earth. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus in a classic and well-known passage in Matthew 5, verse 5, they're going to have the earth as their inheritance. Did you catch that? Jesus promised the earth to you as a Christian. He nowhere promised you a domain in some super-celestial realm far removed from this planet. No, he promised you the inheritance of the earth, paradise restored upon this earth as all the prophets of Israel had envisaged it. Well, you may say, didn't Jesus talk about treasure in heaven? Well, yes, of course he did. He said that we are to lay up treasures in heaven. But you see, according to the ordinary way in which Jews think, that treasure is being prepared in heaven, ready to be revealed with the Messiah when he returns to the earth. What we have in heaven is a store of good things prepared for us, promised to us, held in trust for us, if you like, until Jesus brings it to us as the reward of the faithful when he returns to this earth to establish the kingdom. When you retire, you don't retire in the bank where your money is stored up. You may indeed save up some treasures in a bank right now in view of a coming retirement, but when you retire, that money comes out of the bank and you enjoy it in a different location. So exactly then in the Bible, things which are said to be in heaven now are being prepared for you, but they're going to come to the earth. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus. They're going to inherit the earth. There it is in black and white. Jesus is coming back to this earth. He's the chosen Messiah destined to take up his position on the royal throne of David in Jerusalem. In Revelation 5 and verse 10, we find a very plain statement about the destiny of the Christians. They're going to rule as kings upon the earth. That doesn't sound like disappearing to a place removed from this planet, to a so-called heaven, to a destiny removed from this earth. And so I have to tell you that lines of hymns which speak of flying away or the fact that this world is not my home are potentially very misleading and do not encourage following the words of Jesus. Certainly, the future world will not be just this world. It will be a brand new system, but it will certainly be related to this planet. Jesus does not encourage us to think vertically of souls disappearing and escaping from their bodies. That's a very platonic and philosophical idea. Jesus always encouraged us to think horizontally, forward from this present evil era to the future age, the future era of the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. History, according to the mind of Jesus, is divided into two sections, the present age and the age to come. Unfortunately, this has been obscured in most of our Bible translations. The expression life everlasting, or eternal life, really means in its Jewish environment the life of the age to come, not indeed the life of the world to come, suggesting some region removed from the planet, but the life of the age to come, the new life of the kingdom of God as it will be inaugurated on the earth when Jesus returns. 
Think always of the age to come, because Jesus spoke constantly of that age, for example, in Luke 20, verse 35, and he encouraged his followers to seek the life of the kingdom of God which belongs to the age in the future. The inhabited society to come, as the important text in Hebrews 2, verse 5 describes it. You may remember also in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, that Abraham lived in the promised land, the land which he never inherited during his lifetime, but which was promised to him as the promised land, the land of the promise indeed. Abraham never inherited that land. The story there in Hebrews is that Abraham is destined yet to receive the inheritance which he never yet received. He's going to live in the promised land again, but this time he'll be in charge of the promised land along with all the faithful and with Jesus the Messiah himself. The tension in the Bible story is simply this. The faithful of the olden times have perished without inheriting what was promised to them. They lived in the land of the promise, Hebrews 11 verse 8 says. Now, the promised land was not heaven. Abraham did not live in heaven. He lived in the land which God promised to him to be his inheritance in the future. And so that proves then that the destiny of the Christian and of all the faithful of all the ages is to live in the renewed and purified and renovated earth of the future, a new establishment of a new society to be inaugurated by the presence of Jesus returning in power and glory to take up his position as Messiah on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Our time is running out for today. We ask you to request our free book on the kingdom of God and join us again as we continue our discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel of the kingdom of God.